You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. ...to Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Our focus this morning will be on verses 4 through 11. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on we, your children, who even though we know We have justification and adoption in Christ. We too often think that you love us or find us cute because of ourselves. Liberate us mercifully to rejoice in Christ. See ourselves as as pathetic as we we are if we're relying on those things. To grasp hold of Christ anew by faith and rest there in joy and peace. And Father, for any here today who are trusting in themselves that they are righteous, open their eyes to their sinfulness, and Christ's righteousness, and grant them faith. 
In the strong name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Paul will soon tell these Philippians, brothers, join in imitating me. What Paul commands in this letter, he demonstrates. He demonstrates within and by the letter itself. In these verses, we have just one instance of many in this letter wherein Paul rejoices in the Lord. The title for our previous study in Philippians, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3, was titled, Rejoice in the Lord. It was a command. This one is rejoicing in the Lord. What Paul previously commanded, he is here doing. Previous study, I argued that the two commands that you have in 3, 1 through 3 are related. Rejoice in the Lord, look out for dogs. Looking out for dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, is to be an expression, a doing of rejoicing in the Lord. Briefly, my argument was this. The finally that you have in verse 1 is not just a rhetorical device. It's not as though Paul is speaking as so many preachers of the word do. Finally doesn't really mean finally. And more thoughts come into his mind and he follows those rabbit trails as well. When Paul says finally, neither is this to say that Philippians is a smashing together of two letters, as some have argued. And here you have the conclusion to the first one, and then what follows is another letter. Two letters being presented as one. When Paul says finally, he really has arrived at his concluding point. And it's simply that he elaborates further on it more than the others. And as an argument for this, let me call on you to see one thing and do another. So, I want you to consider, see, 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. So the thesis that he begins here in 3.1, he picks up again and reiterates in 4 and 4. He's carrying the same idea forward. And whenever he says Always, I hope you see that we're encountering with this command what we've seen again and again throughout this letter to the Philippians, another encompassing command. A command that encompasses not only what Paul is laying down throughout this letter, but a command that encompasses the whole of the Christian life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Every other act of obedience that you do unto God is to have this adjective describing it or this adverb describing it. You, you do it rejoicing in the Lord. So consider 4.4 four, and then do this. Spend the rest of this week reading chapters 3 and 4. And as you read them through, ask yourself, 
Does rejoice in the Lord not serve as a fitting heading for everything that follows from this point? I believe you'll see it does. But not only the remainder of this letter is tinted by this command, everything that Paul has already written is as well. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Some believe this refers to another letter. I would argue that he's referring to this theme of joy. Where has Paul already commanded joy in this letter? Chiefly 2, 14, 17, and 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And the positive implication of that is brought out shortly when Paul says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. But long before Paul commanded joy there, he has been commending joy to them. He said he offers up his prayers for them with joy. 1 in verse 3. He said that whenever false men preach the true gospel, he rejoices that the true gospel has been preached. Nonetheless, 1.18. He resolves to rejoice, anticipating the gospel ministry that lies ahead of him, 1.18 and 19. And he, he, part of that gospel ministry that lies ahead of him, which he's rejoicing is, is ministering to the Philippians for their progress and joy in the faith. He's saying, I want to be with you for you to progress in the faith and for your joy in the faith. That's why he wants to be with them. And in absence, he sent them this letter for their progress in the faith and for their joy in the faith. Do you see the encompassing nature of this now? Now, when Paul says, look out, it's to be an expression of rejoicing in Christ. And if you haven't seen that yet, look at verse 3. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Rejoicing in the Lord corresponds to looking out for dogs in the same way that glorying in Christ corresponds to not putting any confidence in the flesh, you see. Now, back to our text. Both commands in 1 through 2 are, an, are under this heading, rejoice in the Lord. The command to rejoice in the Lord, look out for dogs. And you see the same two categories happening in our text today whenever, whenever Paul ridicules the flesh and then he rejoices in the Lord. Same corresponding ideas. So, Paul begins by ridiculing the flesh. And then he goes on to rejoice in the Lord. He demonstrates he puts no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on to glory in Christ. What I'm zealous for us to see, I believe God is zealous for us to see in this word, is that laughing at the flesh is to be a demonstration of joy in Christ. And joy in Christ will liberate you to laugh at the flesh.
In one sense, we take ourselves too seriously. There's a sense in which we don't take ourselves seriously enough. We're made in the image of God. But there's another angle at which we, don't take, we take ourselves too seriously. We take the philosophies of this world too seriously. We take the politics of this world too seriously. We take the religions of this world too seriously. And so what I'm anxious for us to do is to have an Elijah moment. And to look at the prophets of Baal. And mock, ridicule, laugh at how ridiculous they are. See them crying out from morning until noon. Cutting themselves. And respond, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself. Or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. So let us mock and then let us cry out to the covenant God of our redemption, confident that by the blood of Christ we've been redeemed and we can approach boldly the throne of grace as God's children. Let us cry out to our God, remembering Nehemiah's encouragement to the people of Israel that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now sometimes one ridicules in another what they're lacking in themselves. And so it is that the jock mocks the geek for his lack of brawn, and the geek, the jock, for his lack of brain. The mockery is self-validating and a thin veneer to cover up jealousy and insecurity. The laugh is not one full of self-confidence, but sideways glances. Paul, in contrast to this, you see, holds up in himself everything that they boast and glory in and laughs at it. If these Judaizers, these dogs, mutilators of flesh, are flexing in the mirror, Paul comes alongside them, flexes, puts them to shame, and then he laughs at how ridiculous the whole display is. Paul was no Gentile ridiculing the Judaizers. You see the the wisdom of God in this? That it's Paul who is expressly called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Romans 11.11 Peter, John, Matthew, they were Jews. And they ministered to the Gentiles as well. But Peter and John were fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector. Paul was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And it is he who is called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. You have to see how this has been arranged by Paul and by God. You have to see this passage is dripping with sarcasm. If this passage were a dog... And sarcasm were water. 
This dog has just had a bath, and now it's shaking and rubbing its body on the carpet and all the furniture. Sarcasm is everywhere here. Paul says that the saints, what what they put no confidence in, he now holds up in himself and demonstrates that he puts no confidence in it. Even though he could exceed them all in these things. Paul ridicules this, not because he is laughingly lacking, but because that in which they are boasting is laughingly lacking. Paul says, I'll play your game. And he scores the most points. If anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he shows that the whole game itself is ridiculous. It's silly. It's foolish. It means nothing. Boasting before the holy God of heaven of your own righteous deeds and expecting to stand on them is like a doughboy expecting to win World War I with a chess match with a German commander in no man's land during the Battle of the Somme. Thinking you can win that way before the holy God of heaven is nothing more than a good way to get killed. Boasting before God that you will stand on your own feet because of your own righteousness is a sin most grievous before the holy God of heaven. Thinking you can win that way is laughable. Now as Paul plays the game though, he scores big on two counts. Pedigree and performance, verses 5 and 6. As to his pedigree, he's no Gentile proselyte like many of these Judaizers likely were. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Not as an adult, as a Gentile later on wanting to proselytize to Judaism. No, he was circumcised on the eighth day. His parents observed the law, and they observed it exactly as God had commanded and outlined. Further, he was of the people of Israel, specifically at a time whenever most Jews could not trace their lineage. Paul could boast, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, the one tribe other than Judah that remained loyal to the Davidic covenant. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. But not only in regards to his pedigree, his performance was impeccable. He excelled, verse 6. He was a Pharisee. I've argued before that one problem that we have with this passage is that we think too highly of our dogs and we think too little of Pharisees. And for the ancient Jew, the sentiments were exactly the opposite. They esteemed the Pharisees like we do a cute puppy. And they thought of dogs, as we do the Pharisees. Whenever Paul made his defense to Agrippa, he said, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. The strictest party. Those who took the word of God. Who took the law most seriously. That's who Paul was. And then he says he was a persecutor of the church. And we can begin to wrinkle our brow here. Why does he bring up he was a persecutor of the church? How does that help his argument? But he brings it up as an expression of his zeal. 
whatever you might say of Paul, and it was wicked that he was persecuting the church. You cannot say that he was insincere or that he was apathetic. He continues on with Agrippa saying, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Acts 26, 9-11. And then in regard to righteousness under the law, Paul says he was blameless. Blameless, mind you, not sinless. The Pharisee Paul would make a claim to sinlessness. And many who determined to stand on their own righteousness wouldn't say that they're sinless. He says he's blameless. The law itself had prescriptions for sin and how atonement was to be made. But Paul even sees those doings, you see, as his own righteousness. The point is that one couldn't bring an accusation against Paul. So with both his inherited and his merited wealth, Paul makes these dogs look poor. And then he holds it up. And he writes over it all, loss, loss, rubbish. All of his black is red. Everything that he thought was a credit is a debit. Michael Horton explains, as Paul looks over his ledger in Philippians 3, he places all his own righteousness in the liabilities column and all of Christ's righteousness in his assets column. What these dogs mistake as deposits, Paul clarifies are withdrawals. They are as deep in debt as they thought they had surplus. Imagine the United States being deceived to think her national debt was a surplus. And then peeling back the curtain to find out as wealthy as they thought they were, they are in debt. The national debt is as nothing compared to the spiritual debt we all bear before the thrice holy God of heaven. Not only is this righteousness loss, Paul says it is rubbish, verse 8. I think it's significant that this word is used only once in the New Testament. And it's significant that it's used. And it's significant that when it is used, it's used here. And before I go on to unpack it, let me say this. Kids, children, I want you to know that some words are like power tools. You shouldn't play with them. You must know how and when to use them. Words are powerful. Sometimes you need training. 
even should you know when they're appropriate, doesn't necessarily mean you will ever, ever have opportunity. I'm glad that there are semi-trucks. I don't, in, I don't think I will ever drive one, nor should I be entrusted with that kind of power. Rachel Jankovic writes of her husband teaching their children that words, he, he told them, words are tools and some of them are like the big kitchen knives. You have to be big enough to use them. In order to convey the sense of what Paul is saying here, some have resulted to vulgarities, profanities. And I would say that there's a justifiable use therein, but not as a precise translation. Whenever Paul says rubbish, I believe the precise, a precise translation, the best rendering we could do in the form of English is the borderline vulgar. Crap. Now I hope my sparing use of that word from the pulpit, from in my life generally, I hope, drives home to you what Paul is saying here. And if it doesn't, then imagine me taking it to the next level. Because that's what Paul is doing here. He takes it, this word stands out in the original language in that way. As they read it, they would have been shocked at what just came out of Paul's pen to convey to them the worthlessness of these works of righteousness. That which these dogs hold up and boast in glory in, Paul says, that is what I don't even want to step in. They think they're climbing up some ladder of purity. And Paul says, you're wading through a sewer. These Judaizers are like babies playing with their diaper deposits, creating a mural on the wall, thinking they've exceeded Michelangelo, saying, look, daddy. And Paul says, your righteousness stinks. It's abhorrent. It's repulsive. Now, if you think that I or Paul have taken this too far, listen to the way Isaiah speaks. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Once again, it seems we have some polite, refined, reserved translators who failed to capture the color of Isaiah's language. There is no mistaking Isaiah as there's no mistaking Paul here. Isaiah says, all of our righteousness as sinners, outside of Christ, outside of His redemption, all our righteousness is like a minstrel rag. So can you picture what these dogs are bringing before the throne of God? And why it is that Paul, now that he can see it, rolls on the floor laughing at how ridiculous it is and mocks it. Some of you were born in a Baptist church. 
You have the white New Testament that was given to your folks at your dedication. And dedicated you were. You've got the Awana vest with all the badges to prove your dedication. You went to church three times a week. You went to False Creek and you were the exceptional few who took it seriously. And when everyone else was goofing off, you were having a Bible study. You walked an aisle. You made a profession. You were baptized. At college, you went to all the campus ministries. And you married a Christian. All these things. And many of them good things. All these things. If you're trusting in any of them, for your standing before God Almighty, God have mercy on your soul to see what they really are. Loss. Loss. Crap. Look in the mirror at yourself spiritually. What good are biceps when you're trying to lift Jupiter? You are hopeless outside of Christ. Unless you miss the point, some of you, perhaps this will be true of your children, some of you were not dedicated as a child. And you pride yourself that you escaped such absurdities because you believe in the regulative principle of worship. You have worshipped with your family in the home and in church since you can remember. You were catechized. You know what the chief end of man is. You've been reading through your Bible since you were ten. You can sing not only hymns from memory, you sing psalms. You can tell us what the gospel is. You've studied systematic theology, so you can tell us what superlapsarianism is. But know this, if your trust and confidence is in any of those things, they are no credit, they are a liability If you're trusting in any of these things as your righteousness, they are as a stinking pile of refuse in the nostrils of a pure and holy God. For those who have even just one eye open, it just takes one eye open to reality. It's easy to mock and ridicule and laugh. It's easy to be the cynic and the critic. Saints, we must have both eyes open. Or we know nothing of what this text is speaking of. Paul is no bitter cynic. No jaded pessimist. His laughing here is infectious, not obnoxious. And it's infectious because we'll see he is infatuated with Christ. The reason his laugh is infectious and not obnoxious is because his ridiculing here is an expression of his rejoicing. 
Paul is not mocking for the sake of mocking. He's mocking for the sake of magnifying. With one eye, he looks down on these futile attempts at righteousness. And with the other eye, he looks up to Christ who is his righteousness. And that's why he laughs. And that's why his laughing is infectious. When did this transition happen to Paul? I don't think there can be any doubt. Acts chapter 9 tells us. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. Paul, who thought he stood on his own two feet, when he beholds the glory of the risen Christ, falls on his face. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In the light of Christ, Paul saw all his righteousness for what it truly was. Loss. Loss. Crap. And in the light of Christ, Paul saw the one who by faith was his righteousness. Three times Paul tells us how he regards his Past pedigree and performance, lost, lost, dung. In each of these references, it's clear. He regards them so in reference to Christ. Whatever gain he had, verse 7, he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now the first item of accounting Paul has here is one that happened in the past. He counted them as loss. There was a decisive moment in Paul's life which we just spoke of, Acts chapter 9, whenever Paul realized his bankruptcy and recognized that his every effort at trying to merit any favor from God was nothing but a blasphemous denial of his depravity that put him further into debt. And so he says, whatever gain I had, I counted. All this pedigree, all this performance, whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Now what does it mean for the sake of Christ? Does it mean for the cause of Christ? That'll be dealt with soon. Now whenever he says for the sake of Christ, it's not for the cause of Christ here. It's for the prize of Christ. I believe the idea here is Identical to what Jesus spoke of in his two, two of his briefest but most glorious of parables. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. And buys that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who in finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Paul counted the cost of losing all for Christ, and he said, it's too costly not to. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Paul is saying that for the sake of Christ, for possessing Christ, for gaining him like a pearl, like a treasure. If it means the loss of all, it's too costly to hold on to anything for not having Christ. Paul next says he counts everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. This is not simply a numbers game with Paul. It isn't that Paul simply sees all his own righteousness as a liability and Christ is a true credit and therefore he's not really interested in the person of Christ. He just wants the bankroll. Paul does not marry for money. He adores Christ. He wants to know Christ. Whenever he beholds His righteousness and sees how worthless it is. And he beholds Christ in all of his righteousness. His eyes aren't thinking righteousness. His eyes are thinking Christ. I want to know him. I want covenant communion and fellowship and knowledge of Christ. The joy of our salvation does not terminate on our being reckoned just. The joy of our salvation is not found in being declared righteous. Now that's a joy, but it doesn't terminate in climax there. The joy comes is that we who have been declared just are also declared sons. We're adopted. Not our justification. There's a legal act that expresses the height of our joy. But it's not the legal declaration of justification. It's the legal declaration of adoption that captures the climax of our joy in Christ. Jesus said, this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is salvation. That is our joy This is what it means to rejoice in the Lord. It means to count everything else as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
And note that with this, we've gone from a past particular to a universal, to a present universal. So previously, Paul counted all that he had gained, his, his pedigree and his performance. Previously, Paul counted that as loss. Now, he says, I count everything as loss. And this begins to let you know that it's not that Paul, whenever he's ridiculing these, are, he's ridiculing these things as ridiculous and laughable in and of themselves. He's simply saying, they are not Jesus. And of everything in this world, everything, the saints can look at it and they can say, I can lose that. However dear and precious and good and wonderful those things are, I can lose that because that is not Jesus. A Nerf gun is not a ridiculous thing. But if a patrolman were to arm himself with one as his primary weapon, that would be ridiculous. We need to put the things of this earth in their place. Obedience to the law is no laughing matter. But if you think obedience to the law is how you're going to stand before the holy God of heaven on the day of judgment, that's ridiculous. If you treasure anything on this earth more than the one who is the fountain and author and source and definition of all that is good and true and beautiful, you're a fool, a laughable fool. And at this point, it's made plain to us that Paul's not just playing a game of mental math here. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul's accounting is not just a game of mental math. He has put values to the X's and Y's, and they've been subtracted. Paul Paul not only counts everything as loss, he has experienced them as loss. Sinners, here is a testimony to believe. It's been the testimony of the saints again and again throughout history who have said, as many of you I've seen in your life, you've testified along with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Sinner, the church has lived out this testimony again and again. Don't fail to hear it. Children, don't fail to hear the testimony of your parents that everything, is as nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, their Lord. Put your confidence in nothing more. Treasure nothing more. And if you shamefully now see yourself in the mirror for what you really are, then look to Christ in faith and embrace Him as your righteousness. The only way you can really freely laugh is when you're free in Christ. When your joy is a joy in Christ. 
That was the last accounting item. Paul says he counts all things as rubbish, refuse, dung, crap for three reasons. First, in order that he may gain Christ and be found in him. What does it mean to gain Christ and be found in him? He explains it means having a righteousness not of his own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And this is where, this is, this is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's, it's the truth that the holy God of heaven reckons his people righteous. He counts them such. They're not made such. He's transforming us to be righteousness and conforming us to the Son. But justification says God reckons as an act of accounting, as a legal declaration, Jesus' righteousness to be ours, and He does so through the means, the open hands of faith. In light of what Paul says in this passage, listen to Galatians 2, where Paul writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you see now that Paul does his accounting as he does because of God's accounting? You want to be freed to account the things of this world as loss, 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 then see the gracious act of God in counting the righteousness of Jesus Christ to you due to nothing in you. God counts the sins of His people on Christ and He counts Christ's righteousness on His people. Galatians 5, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Second, Paul says he counts all things as dung in this regard, that he might know Christ, verse 10, and the power of His resurrection. Power of His resurrection is to be distinguished from what he goes on to speak of as attaining the resurrection of the dead. So what is the power of His resurrection? It's what he spoke of whenever he said, to live is Christ. It's what he speaks of in Galatians 2.20 whenever he says, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And if you're still unclear, it's what Paul speaks of in Romans 6 whenever he says, we died with Christ and we've risen with Christ. We've died to sin that we might live unto God. The power of Christ's resurrection means that in the new birth, you've already experienced spiritual life and been raised from the dead and live unto God. It's something that happens right now. And so you see what Paul has done. He's taken us from justification now to sanctification. And he says in all of it, all is Christ. Nothing of himself. And third, Paul counts all things as refuse that he may share in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, 
he might attain to the resurrection of the dead. He wants to be, he's beheld Christ in his beauty and glory. And this is what tells you he doesn't just want Christ bank. He wants Christ is that he'll be conformed to his image even in his suffering. The very persecution that Paul used to inflict, he is now willing to endure. The zeal is still there, but it's been radically transformed from Paul the Pharisee to Paul the Christian. And if you don't understand this zeal, listen again to 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To live is Christ. To die, gain. In Romans eight seventeen, Paul says that we, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You see it? Paul says that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus told His disciples that they would be hated by all for His namesake. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Matthew 10. But in light of the humiliation and exaltation of Christ, as we see it here, and all the promises implicitly there, and what Paul is developing right now, concerning sharing in his sufferings, that he might attain to the resurrection... In light of all of that, loss, 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 all in comparison to Christ, gaining Christ. And so when we hear Christ say, if anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it, Matthew 8. When we hear Christ say that, we gladly write loss over all things for the sake of Christ, for the prize of Christ, for the surpassing worth and value of knowing Christ our Lord, in order that we might be found in Christ, not having our righteousness of our own under the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, in order that we might know the power of His resurrection, in order that we may share in His sufferings, that by any means possible we may attain to the resurrection of the dead. 
So in this final bit of accounting, you see that Paul has taken us from justification to sanctification and now to glorification. And all of it, he says, Christ, Christ, Christ. Everything else, loss. Beloved, I pray that right now, by God's grace, by His Spirit ministering the Word to us, we are so full of Christ intoxicated with Christ that we can laugh. We laugh at that selfie of our old self that oozes vanity and feigns self-confidence. We laugh at it and we turn our eyes to Jesus and we say, Why would I want to look anywhere else? And oh, the bliss that when the Father looks on me, He doesn't see me. He sees Christ. Oh, to be conformed to His image. Whatever the cost. I pray we meet the false Christ and saviors of this world with a butt-gusting guffaw at how ridiculous they are. Not with the bitter laugh of a critic, but with the joy of one who is loved by their heavenly Father in the Son, Jesus Christ. I pray we laughed in such a way That whenever we're invited by the slaves of sin to play their games of merit, we would laugh. Because our elder brother is the only one who can ever win that game. And he's won it for us. Saints, this is why we rejoice. And it's why we rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, our righteousness. Let's pray. Father, May we be discerning in our looking out for dogs because we are looking up to Christ and infatuated with Him, being conformed to His image so that we truly see how laughingly lacking everything is other than Your Son that You gave that we might know You. So may He be chief in our thoughts, in our decisions, in our affections. Father, grant us grace to obey this command. We are insufficient of ourselves. Show us Christ. Give us the light of the knowledge of Him by Your Word and Your Spirit, conforming us to His image. 
that we might go forward in the strength of the Lord, magnifying you and your great salvation in all that we do, from you, through you, and to you are all things. To you be all the glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, we come, Father. We come with our praises and we lift them up to you in Him. In His name, Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.